Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I will say a much easier week of preparation for me for Sunday morning since I was prepared to preach this last week and we didn't do it, so it's always nice to work ahead. Uh, this morning we will read verses 25 through 40. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 through 40, which is coincidentally the end of the chapter. An opening phrase that's sure to make everyone uncomfortable, verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And those who use this world as not misusing it. For the form of this world is passing away, but I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. So then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. But she is happier if she remains as she is, according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. So let me start by making a, maybe an unorthodox observation here. Paul is a courageous guy. Can we agree on that? Paul is a courageous guy. Um, he has the courage to answer questions that are uncomfortable to deal with. Um, and I would say... For every man or woman here, it really is a prerequisite to doing anything that I can think of, of real value in the kingdom of God, that you have a fair amount of courage. Courage is not the same as being big and boisterous and loud and overbearing. That's not courage. Sometimes it can be mistaken from courage. 
And certainly there's a time to get yourself worked up and fired up about something, I suppose. But that is not in and of itself the same as, as courage. Neither is uh, meekness and gentleness and quietness uh, the same as cowardice. The church doesn't necessarily need loud, big, boisterous personalities. It may have them. It's fine. Personalities are what they are. But it doesn't need them to function, to operate. Nor does it need quiet, reserved, uh, timid, introverted personalities. Again, it's fine if it has them. But the church and the people of God must possess courage. They, they must possess a fair amount of courage. We have uh, seen some courage already this morning uh, in several different ways. It takes a certain amount of uh, courage to stand up in front of everyone and go through all the announcements. And I don't say that as a joke either. James may be real comfortable with doing it by now. It may not make him nervous in the slightest. But that's not the default position for everybody, that just standing up and speaking in front of everybody, you know, is, yeah, no big deal, and yeah, no problem. That's not, that doesn't come naturally to too many folks. Maybe it does for James, I don't know. It takes courage to stand up and pray in front of people, to stand up and declare God's word, as Marty did when he read in front of people. It takes courage to sing in front of people. You know, I, I will commend the other three men in the choir. When there are only three men singing a men's part, your voice is going to be heard. That takes courage. Not to mention the courage of the ladies to stand up and sing. Now, I would say nothing about the motivation behind anyone doing what they did this morning and what you've participated in this morning. Maybe motivations were good, maybe they weren't. I presume they're all good because I believe 1 Corinthians 13 mandates that I presume that all the motivations were good. I'm not supposed to be thinking evil of brothers and sisters in Christ. So I operate from the position that everyone is functioning from the right place spiritually. But courage is required. And it's interesting that uh, Paul and the other apostles... Uh, were very courageous uh, from the outset of the church as well. Um, Paul had a large number of enemies, and when we think of those, we often think of those outside the church. But a large part of his writing is dealing with enemies from within the various churches that he'd started and been a part of. Why? Because of really one of two things. Either those enemies did not like what he had the courage to stand up and say, or he had to muster the courage to stand up and say that these people who were talking in his absence were wrong. Either way, courage. You see that in the disciples of the Lord, I think. Uh, how many of uh, the Lord's disciples had the courage to be there throughout his crucifixion? Uh, one man and a few women, according to the text. Maybe there were more. But from the text, one man and a few women. 
So I appreciate uh, the courage of Paul to answer these questions. And we're going to take them seriously. Because we need to have the courage to think through these things. Verse 25 says, now concerning virgins. Virgins is a, a Greek word that we translate virgins. It, oftenly just, it, it most oftenly just means young women who are not married because it was assumed they were virgins. So think young, unmarried, you know, girls who are becoming women. Think, think about it like that. In the Roman world, and this is relevant because that's when this is being written, a girl could legally, marriage, uh, could legally marry at age 12. But that wasn't the practice, except for in the high upper class of the Roman world. In the high upper class of the Roman world, they would often marry daughters very, very young because they were consolidating power, resources, um, securities, and these things were often arranged from birth. But among the lower and middle class, the everyday citizen of the Roman world, that was not the case. It was very much similar to how things have traditionally been in our culture. Late teens, early 20s uh, is when girls got married. And they usually were arranged marriages. If there was a legal guardian, and oftentimes there wasn't a father, but there would be a legal guardian. The legal guardian would seek to find a secure relationship for that young woman. Sometime in their early to mid-teens, an arrangement would be agreed upon, and in the late teens to early 20s, the young lady would marry a young man who uh, met the qualifications of the guardian. Now, there are questions about that in the church. Shouldn't surprise us. The church is where people live. And this church in Corinth is coming out of a context, a cultural context, where sexual immorality was rampant. They're worshiping false gods before Paul shows up, uh, just within the last dozen years, and starts the church. They're worshiping false gods. Then the worship of these false gods, they're committing sexual immorality just to worship these false gods. So sexual immorality, by any measure, was far more prevalent in the Roman world than even what we've developed a taste for in our world today. And our taste has been far too developed. Verse 25 says, Now concerning these young women, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give a judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Now what's he saying? He's saying, I do not have a command from Jesus to quote to you. Now he's saying that because if you have read to this point up through chapter 7, at several occasions he quotes Jesus. What do we do about this? What do we do about that? He just quotes Jesus. You know, which, look, that's an easy thing to do. <laughs> if someone asked me, should you lie? No. How do you know that? Because the Lord said you shouldn't. Uh, just, how about I just quote Jesus? Here he's saying is, the Lord Jesus didn't give me any quotes about uh, what to do with young ladies who might get married. So he's saying, right up front, I'm telling you, I don't have a quote here. But I can give you a judgment. I'm not going to leave you without any help at all. I can help you think through this. That's what he's saying. As one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. In other words, Paul has the courage to stand up and say, look, the Lord has made me trustworthy uh, when it comes to the churches. I'm going to level with you and say, I can't give you a command. Do this, don't do this on all these things. But I'm also going to try to help think through this. And that is the real value of the second half of this. Uh, and I want you to understand this. As we're 
reading. What we're getting ready to read, the real value is not figuring out what to do with your teenage daughter. That's not, that's not the real value. The real value is we get to sit back and listen to how the Apostle Paul thought through a challenging thing. Do you have challenging things in your life that you've got to figure out? couple head nodding. I'm glad for most of you, there's nothing challenging facing you whatsoever. That's great. It must be a wonderful life. But the truth is we all have challenging things we've got to figure out. How do you answer questions about what you should do if you're a Christian person where there is no thou shalt do this, thou shalt not do this command? How do you do that? We get to watch Paul reason through this. And he's very transparent in his reasoning. Maybe too transparent for us to be comfortable with it. But I appreciate the courage to be transparent. So here's how he thinks through it. Verse 26. I suppose, you hear the language? Not I command. I'm thinking through this. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Now, We don't know what the Corinthian church was dealing with at that particular time. We don't know if it was early church persecution in the community, which we know was happening. We know people are being martyred for being Christians at this point in time. We know people are being run out of their businesses because they profess Jesus Christ. They're losing their place in the community. That's public knowledge, historical public knowledge about the first and second century in the Roman world. If you were a Christian, you were an enemy of society. Okay, maybe that's what he's talking about. We don't know. He doesn't elaborate. What we know is whatever they're dealing with in Corinth at this particular point in time was widely known. He doesn't have to explain it, and it was scary. It was frightening, just in a very practical way. So he says, I suppose because of this present distress, it's good for a man to remain as he is. Notice he's asked about what do you do with your teenage daughter, and he starts with the flip side of it, a single guy. And he says, I think it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, you cannot take this thinking and then extrapolate it into some command or instruction that celibacy is better than being in a a marriage. You can't do that because in chapter 7, he's already dealt with that. So he's not simply changing directions and saying to all of us now celibacy is what we should all strive for he's not doing that he's already killed that line of thinking in chapter 7 he's simply thinking through it and we know that paul's instructions already is that look a person is either gifted to be able to 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 have no interest in marriage and to be able to function as a single person without temptation or they're not and if a person is not gifted to be able to function that way without temptation then marriage is a good thing and it's better to marry than to burn with passion he's already covered that in chapter seven so we know he's not suddenly reversing course but thinking through this If you can not be married as a single man in light of what we're facing right now in Corinth, I suppose that would be a good thing. And so he says, then his logic, verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be loosed. Don't try to get out of marriage. (laughs) Are are you uh, loosed from a wife? Has she died? Are you divorced? Don't, Don't seek a wife. That's his, his opening thought process here. But verse 28, even if you do marry, you have not sinned. 
In other words, governing Paul's thinking here, he is saying, here's what I think in light of the circumstances might be better or worse, but the prevailing thinking here is, if I'm a Christian, I am not to sin. And so I want to be very clear, choosing to go against this counsel is not evil. It's not wrong, which is good news for me. I'm married. It's good news for the church in general because outside of marriage, you don't get a lot of kids. So Paul is not trying to condemn marriage, but he's giving a verdict based on what the Corinthians were facing. Now here he says, if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. So at no point should a father trying to figure these things out in a culture where arranged marriages was the way people got married. At no point should a father think, gosh, if I decide to let my kid or to facilitate a marriage here, I'm doing something wrong or they're doing something wrong. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they didn't weep. Those who rejoice as though they didn't rejoice. Those who buy as though they didn't possess. Those who use the world as not misusing it. In other words, we're in a period of time where, and again, I think this is specific to the Corinthians. Commentators have gone both ways. But where the foundational elements of what makes a stable society are going to be an upheaval. In other words, circumstances are going to put even people with wives in positions as though they didn't have any. And people who um, are weeping now won't be weeping. People who are rejoicing now won't be rejoicing. People who buy should buy as though they do not plan to possess. And people who use this world should be real careful not to misuse it. The time is short. Now some people hear this from Paul and they think, well, he's just talking in general about the Lord Jesus is going to return. And so this is basically a rehearsing of what we read in Matthew, that you can't take your treasure with you and shouldn't store up treasure on the earth. Maybe. However, Paul has a lot of history in the New Testament talking about the return of Jesus Christ. He doesn't usually talk about it in this way. This is not Paul's style. This is the only place where Paul is talking about the return of Jesus Christ, if that's what he's doing here, and talking about it in a cautionary, careful way. Everywhere else, he's not doing that. So I think he's just talking about the present distress. I think the Corinthians were in a unique situation, and their place in society was being jeopardized. Their lives were being jeopardized. Their ability to provide were being jeopardized. And he's trying to weigh all of that with the decision of whether or not I should get married. Whether or not somebody should get married. He says, I want you, verse 32, to be without care. I don't want you to have to go through this period of time um, constantly concerning yourself with what am I going to do about my husband? What am I going to do about my wife? What am I going to do about my kids? So this is the context, and it points to a real truth in marriage that Paul explicitly says here in verse 32. Here's verse 32. I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. He who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. 
Then he says there's a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. This is just basic stuff, right? I mean, it's true. It's true. I appreciate the honesty in acknowledging this. If a man marries a woman, he can still serve the Lord. But he's going to spend a lot of time figuring out how to please his wife, how to take care of her the way that she wants to be taken care of. Please, the word please here means to maintain a good opinion of. If you are a husband and you are not concerned with how to maintain your wife's good opinion, you're a fool. <laughs> and then, you know, it's very egalitarian. He flips the switch and says the exact same thing about a wife. If you're a wife, you're going to be concerned with your husband's good opinion. Matter of fact, some of the most frustrating times in marriage is when you're really trying to be worthy as a husband or be worthy as a wife of the good opinion and the, the satisfaction of your spouse. And no matter what you do, you can't seem to win. You can't please them, right? That's one of the most frustrating parts of marriage, that we are all sinful people. <laughs> and I love my wife, and my wife loves me, but I'm a sinner. And she could be doing everything right, and I could be dissatisfied and a jerk. Is that right? No. Is that real? Yeah, that's real. So I appreciate the honesty that Paul is approaching a very sensitive issue with. And I, I'll take it one step further. Verse 34, there is a phrase used here when he speaks to women who are in marriage, and it's not used when he speaks to men who are in marriage. And here's, it's the middle of verse 34. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. Of course, it says that same thing about the unmarried man. But then it says this, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Now look, this is just a basic marriage reality. Marriage and children take a different toll on the body, the physical life of a woman, than they do a man. And Paul just flat out acknowledges that. That is true. If you're a man, marriage is about laying down your life for your wife in service of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you're a woman, this comes with real physical demands in most cases when there are children. And the freedom, even in a marriage relationship, that a man might have to serve the Lord freely, unfettered, is going to be very different than a woman might have at times in a marriage relationship. If you are five, six, seven, eight, nine months pregnant, if you have children one, two years old, I mean, there is not a same bodily freedom even as there would be for your husband in most cases. There's just not. And Paul, I think, is just being honest about that. And the word holy here doesn't mean more righteous than someone who's single. It, holy means set apart. Set apart. A woman who is single can be set apart to serve the Lord 
in a way that a woman who is married just can't. There are real physical demanding realities there. The same is true for a man, but in, in a different way, not the same way. Paul assumes then, as he's thinking through this issue, that it matters to you as a Christian how free you are to serve the Lord. Maybe that's a bad assumption. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't matter to you. Whatever. But as Paul thinks through something, he's trying to offer his judgment and as one who the Lord has made trustworthy. How do I think through this issue? He thinks about the circumstances in the world at the time and the demands that that's going to have upon a person who enters into marriage. And then he thinks about what a Christian's chief desire should be, and that is to serve the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there are real implications when you think about the freedom to do that in marriage and the freedom to do that as a single person. Um, I cannot just decide tomorrow, I'm going to go to some foreign country and go serve the Lord in missions overseas. That, that's not an easy decision for me. Even if I felt called to do that, I cannot just willy-nilly drop my baggage, quit my job, hop on a plane and figure it out when I get there. Not that that would be the wise thing to do anyway, but I can't do it. I have obligations. My wife, please hear me when I say this, honey, can't do that either. <laughs> it would be bad news if she did. So I appreciate his honesty. It says here, she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And then notice Paul's intention in verse 35. And this I say for your own profit. Not that I may put a leash on you. I am not trying to create, he says, laws and collars and rules to keep you from doing what the Lord has called you to do. I am simply someone whom the Lord has made trustworthy, trying to think through what might be profitable for you. This I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. Marriage is a distraction. It is. It can be a wonderful distraction. <laughs> and it can be a not so wonderful distraction. It can be a God-ordained and a God-called ministry. Something that the Lord has called you to. Something that the Lord has purpose for you in. But it will take your eye off the ball from time to time. There is no doubt about that. Now, verse 36, if you really think through it, can help us think through a lot of issues here. Listen to what he says. Now remember, arranged marriage culture. No one's getting married unless the legal guardians have put their names on it. An arranged marriage culture where a spouse starts getting searched for probably at the latest, around 10, 11, 12. And for marriage at a later date, 
maybe 14, 15, 16, but the arrangement is something that everybody knows is going to have to be made, and the timetable for that is starting earlier in life, because as we all know with all of our children, the general tendency of all of us is to want to secure things for them as opposed to just say, ah, we'll just figure it out whenever we get there. I mean, there are some things you can just figure out when you get there, and there are big things that we know will have huge implications for their life. And in a culture where arranged marriages is what people do, that's a big thing. If you're a father, who you give your daughter to in marriage is a big deal. So here he goes. If any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin. Now, what might that mean? Let's rule out the obvious and ridiculous. It clearly does not mean if a man, if a father thinks that he is sexually behaving improperly towards his daughter. Because if that were the case, in the Old Testament law, the guy would be stoned. In the New Testament, he would at the very least be thrown out of the church. This is not talking about any improper conduct. It's also, in some translations, say this is talking about two people who are betrothed to be married. To be married. It's also not talking about that. I can say that with a lot of confidence. I would have to get into a long exegetical argument to make that point. But basically, it doesn't fly in light of the counsel already given in the text that those who are predetermined towards marriage as opposed to predetermined towards singleness should get married. Okay. This is talking about, and most commentaries agree and have historically agreed throughout church history, a father with a daughter. What do I do about my daughter? When it says, if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. In other words, in the context of what we're talking about, a father who had determined that he would not marry off his daughter and now feels that he is behaving improperly by being so determined not to marry her off, is free to marry her off, assuming she is past the flower of youth. What does that mean? Well, put it this way. Socrates, when he uses this phrase in his writing, even in ancient Greece, past the flower of youth meant early 20s in ancient writing. So I would say not fundamentally different from how we look at young women who are grown and old enough to be thinking about marriage. I like it that Paul is obviously and clearly not suggesting that any children be married on their father's whims. I like it that he adds it as an addendum as if it would be ridiculous to think otherwise. I mean, he doesn't come out and say, don't marry your teenage daughter if they're super young. He just adds it as an addendum because obviously that would be improper. But it's not improper to simply revisit whether or not 
you will marry your daughter off to a person so long as she is past the flower of youth. But if she's not past the flower of youth, it's still improper. Don't be doing that. You see what I'm getting at? The, the thinking here is obvious. Now, take this a step further. Again, we don't live in an arranged marriage culture. My marriage was certainly not arranged. Um, if you did live in an arranged marriage culture, as a dad of a young lady, you could have no more serious responsibility in life than this, right? I mean, I hope that that's how you would feel about it. If you did live in arranged marriage culture, then, and you were a Christian in the church, writing to Paul asking these questions, we can assume a few things already. Number one, you're not some prideful jerk who is unconcerned and not considering your daughter's feelings about this. That would be why you are writing to Paul, because obviously you are concerned about your daughter's feelings. You're also not just in it to find a good arranged marriage so you can make a lot of money for the dowry or for the power of the relationship. Because again, that's not how Christians function. Even in this text, in the preceding verses, we're told the time is short. You know, you, you, the, world is not, the world is not permanent, that you shouldn't think that way. So let's give the people asking the question the benefit of the doubt and assume they are the Christians that Paul is addressing them as. All right? That means it's likely that these people went to church together. And there are some husbands and wives with some children who are boys and some husbands and wives with some children who are girls, right? And at some point in teenage years, you start looking around. Who might my child who's a girl or my child who's a boy marry someday? Inquiries would be made. Hey, uh, I noticed you have a daughter. I have four of them. <laughs> Lots of inquiries would be made. I noticed you have a daughter, right? She seems to be uh, a decent person. I have a son in and of myself. He's a decent guy. Would your daughter maybe be interested in my son at some point in the future and down the road? Now, if you are broached with that question as the father of a, of a daughter, how you answer is going to have some consequences, isn't it? If you say, actually, I don't think very much of your son and I'd prefer not to go any further with this, that's going to have some consequences, isn't it? Yeah, especially if you're trying to function in a church community with each other. That's not going to go over real well. In other words, simply saying, we're not interested, is not going to go over well, right? People are going to get their feelings hurt. People are going to get offended. Well, what's so wrong about me? What, why isn't my son good enough for your daughter? And on and on and on. So now think about this. What if you had a young teenage daughter who has been in the body of Christ listening to the teaching of God's word for a long time and who at 12, 13, 14 comes to you as her father and says, Daddy, I've been thinking and praying about this. I don't think I want to get married when I grow up. I want, 
I want to be free. I don't, I'm not dealing with any kind of temptations. I just want to serve the Lord with all my heart. Now, as a dad, you're not going to be able to keep those sentiments secret for very long if someone is approaching you to try to arrange a marriage, are you? Because if you try to reject these marriage proposals without simply explaining the obvious reason why, you're going to hurt a lot of people, aren't you? Ergo, if a, a daughter and her father have determined they're going to take this approach to an arranged marriage situation, people are going to hear about it. Well, I'm not going to go ask Reggie about his daughter. I understand she wants to remain single. She wants to serve the Lord. That's her plan. I'm not going to go talk to him about his daughter. Go somewhere else. But imagine then the awkwardness of when that same little girl is not so little anymore. And now, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, she wants to be married. <laughs> you can't just announce a marriage because now everybody else thinks you've been lying to them for the last 10 years. And secretly, you didn't want them to marry. And... And so now we've made this public commitment that people know about and now you're changing your mind. Plus, isn't this a commitment you made to the Lord? Are we allowed to just turn our backs on that and unmake that commitment now and get married? Do you understand how in a different culture this is an entirely different issue with all kinds of social consequences. And so it would be shocking if we wrote to a Bible teacher somewhere to ask this kind of question, but it is perfectly reasonable here. And so Paul is trying to help a father who doesn't want to behave wrongly towards his daughter who wants to get married think through this issue. And here's what he says again. If any man thinks... He is behaving improperly toward his virgin. If she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will. And again, I take this to mean in light of what he just said, that a father who stands steadfast in his heart is a father who is not convinced that he is behaving improperly towards his daughter by forcing her to hold to something that she doesn't want to hold to. In other words, Paul is presuming something precious. And if you're a daddy out there, I hope you're listening to me. Paul is presuming that a Christian father loves his children cares about what they are feeling and thinking, and wants to do right by them. Paul is presuming that a Christian father cares deeply about their child's feelings and their child's future all blended into one. He is assuming that a Christian father is sensitive 
to the fact that he might be behaving improperly towards his children by trying to hold them to something that they should not be held to. There is a lot to learn here about how a Christian father should behave with his kids in all facets of life when you realize that Paul is assuming that. He is not assuming that Christian dads are just tyrants who issue their own whimsical commands and now everybody's got to get on board. He's not presuming that. Now the guideline is still very clear. No sin. No sin. This also doesn't give a Christian father who's in tune with his children's feelings license to condone sinful relationships. Because again, the parameter throughout this whole passage is no sin. Look at verse 27. Verse 28, you have not sinned. Again, she has not sinned. Here in verse 36, he does not sin. The presumption is Christians don't knowingly walk into sin, but they also don't overpower their children with their will on a whim. Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and is so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. Verse 38, so then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. What does that mean, does better? Like it's better not to be married? It is in the context of what Paul is saying here, his judgment of their present situation. Obviously, he is not saying it is better if nobody gets married. We're not going to have many generations of the church if we all follow that advice. He's clear in the context of these verses what he means when he says does better. He means because your present circumstances are really bad. But in general, is it better to be single? Only in the sense that you're more free to serve the Lord. But it's not better for everybody to be single. Most people, even the word of the Lord Jesus here, are not wired that way. Now, verse 39. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Again, don't sin. <laughs> you, could see, you could get it on the, on the phrase of all this. Plenty of freedom, but not freedom to sin. Verse 40, his own judgment, but she is happier if she remains as she is according to my judgment. What does that mean? That Paul thinks he knows what's best for everybody? No. What he means by according to my judgment is what he's talking about back up in verse 25. When he says, yet I give a judgment. He's saying, in light of the current circumstance. I mean, there's a case to be made that Jewish people were probably not picking the most ideal time to get married in the Holocaust, were they? Does that make it evil to get married in the middle of the Holocaust in Western Europe? No, it doesn't make it evil. It means you're going to deal with some unique present circumstances that are going to be terrifying. I don't know what their circumstances were. And I'm not trying to compare it to the Holocaust. I have no idea. I'm simply saying, when he says, according to my judgment, that's what he means. And then he adds, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. 
So, Paul's thinking, wrapping it up. One, we have to know what sin is because no matter how we're going to think through any difficult subject, we are never allowed to think through that difficult subject and arrive at a conclusion that is going to give us permission to do something that is evil. This is Paul trying to figure something out, trying to answer a tough question. That's okay. Christians are not allowed to rationalize their way to doing sinful things. Romans 6.23, written by the Apostle Paul. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's Isaiah 59. Verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your sins have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. A Christian is never allowed to rationalize their way to doing something that God has condemned. That's how he thinks through it. Second way he thinks through this. How can I please the Lord? Do you see how many times... In, the, in these verses, he's trying to figure out what can I do to please the Lord? What can I do to please the Lord? It, it shows up a couple of times. Once in verse 31. Another time in verse 34. As a Christian, as you think through challenging things, it is presumed that you are preoccupied. Again, we talked about pleasing your wife. Or pleasing your husband, meaning maintaining their good opinion. It's presumed that you are occupying yourself with maintaining the Lord's favor and His good opinion in your life. Whatever I do, I want to do it to the glory of God. Whatever I do, it's got to please Him. What is sin? How can I please the Lord? Third thing, am I focused on worldly things here? You see Paul trying to balance out worldly things through here. There's a difference, he says. The time is short in this scenario. There are worldly things and there are eternal things. All worldly things, all earthly things in this sense aren't bad. Marriage is an earthly thing. It's not eternal, it's earthly. But you can't be so focused on earthly things that you lose sight of, am I pleasing the Lord? Is this sinful? Is this right? Is this wrong? There's a balance. Again, the phrase here is in verse 31. And those who use this world as not misusing it. We all have to use the world to a certain extent. If you're going out to lunch this afternoon, you're paying with using the world. Okay, something from it. But there is using the world and there is misusing the world. And Christians have to balance that. And finally, last one here. It is presumed that no matter if you're married or single, if you're a father or mother or if you're not, it is presumed that Christians are concerned wholeheartedly with all of their heart, all their heart, with serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, we do not serve the Lord in slices. Now, to serve the Lord with all your heart, it takes courage. That means there is no part of your life 
that you are holding back from the Lord's authority and leadership. There is no segment, no slice of the pie that makes up your life that you have reserved in the depths of who you are that God has no say in, that He has no authority in. It is a surrender of yourself to the Lord Jesus for service. This is what the Lord Jesus demanded of His very own disciples in the flesh. Peter, James, and John must leave the fishing nets behind. Matthew must leave the profession behind. Zacchaeus must repay all of his debts. The man with the father who must be buried must not turn back. On and on and on. I want to read to you in closing a very small portion from the Old Testament. This is the Lord calling his people to task because they are not serving him with all of their heart. Okay? Lord, Yahweh, God, calling Israel to task because they are not serving God. Now listen. Malachi chapter 3, verse 14 and following. You have said, this is God speaking, it is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinances, that we have walked as mourners, before the Lord of hosts. So now we call the proud blessed for those who do wicked are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Now God is saying, you, my people, have said that. In other words, that there is no gain in serving God. And the reason is because when we look around at the nations and the people around us, we see the nations and the people around us getting rich and prospering and doing well. And they're not serving you. They're proud people. And now we look at the proud people who aren't humble before the Lord and we call them blessed. For those who do wicked are raised up. So God's people have determined in their heart there's no profit in serving God. Now if you're not careful, you'll do the same thing. You will see a need. You will see an opportunity to serve the Lord. You will get a sense of what you might do in service to him, and you will back away from it, either out of cowardice or a profit-loss analysis. It's not worth it. Well, God's people in Malachi chapter 3 have done their own P&L, and they determined there's no profit in serving the Lord. Why? Because people who don't serve the Lord seem to be doing better. Here's the Lord's response, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and who meditate on his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on the day that I make them my jewels and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. In other words, God is saying the prophet of serving me is that on the day of judgment, when every man is called to account, my people who fear me and who serve me will be spared as a man would spare his own son. In other words, your service to me is not merely a slave to a master. Your service is as a child to a father. And as a child, your father will save you. And that's in the Old Testament. And what do we find in the New Testament? 
A father who has sent his only son to save sinners and to adopt them into his family so that, and this is the quote, they might have the right to be called the children of God. And God will spare his children. God will bless his children. God will keep his children. That's the profit. The profit is not whether or not serving God is going to cost you money. Let me save you the trouble. It will. The prophet is not whether or not serving God is going to take up a lot of time. It will. If your profit loss analysis does not extend beyond the grave, you will reach the wrong conclusion and you will die with a red ledger. A ledger of sin that has not been forgiven. And you will spend eternity in hell. Why? Because you are not a child of God. You simply tried to make yourself a business partner where if God showed you the profit in serving Him, you would exchange your service in light of that gain. God is not interested in your contracts. He would adopt you into His family and give you an eternal inheritance. And if you would have that if you would call upon him as father, if you would serve him as son or daughter, if you would see his inheritance as a treasure, then you will be saved. But if you simply want a financial transaction or a happiness transaction or an ease of life transaction, he has nothing for you. Look unto his son, Jesus Christ, who had none of those things in his lifetime. Did not have ease of life, great wealth, or great fame and notoriety so that everyone should love him. But he was despised and rejected by men. He bore our stripes on his back. By those stripes we are healed. But the Lord will remember in Malachi chapter 3. Those who serve him. Here are the last two verses of that passage. For behold the day is coming. Burning like an oven. And all of the proud. Yes, all who do wickedly will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. That is the inheritance coming to us with the Son of Righteousness. That's what I would invite you to, to turn away from your sin and to serve the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I ask that you would give your people the courage to serve you with all of our hearts. That our value system will not be based on what we can attain in this world, but on the inheritance you've called us to eternally. Father, I ask for forgiveness when I fall short of that. Lord, I ask that you will save those who might be here today who have not committed themselves to you, who have not looked at Jesus for salvation, who have not been adopted into your family because they hold in reserve their desire to maintain power and control over their lives. 
Father, give them the faith to believe in your Son, Jesus, and surrender themselves to His service. Save them from their sin. Save them from destruction. Let them be free. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.